Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. Now, Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, a retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Hello, all. Happy New Year. <laughs> we hope you guys had a wonderful holiday season with your families. This, this is going to be released on what? January 2nd, 2023. I know. Crazy. So before we begin, I actually have an update on a case we've already covered. Okay. So remember the case of Joseph Fritzl, the disgusting guy in Austria who imprisoned his daughter in the basement? Yes, yes. Uh, how could you forget? I know. So do you remember that we were speculating that there were some kind of weird things going on with his mom, Maria? Yes. One of our listeners, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Taylor, hello. Happy New Year. They reached out to me to let us know that Joseph Fritzl has addressed some of those rumors. Really? So his mother died in 1980. And after his arrest, he revealed to his psychiatrist that prior to her death, she'd grown very sick. And as he was an only child, it fell on him to care for her. Okay. He admitted that he bricked up her attic and kept her trapped inside for years prior to her death. What? He explained he'd done this in order to punish her for all of the abuse she'd inflicted on him as a child. Okay. So he pretty much imprisoned his mom before he even imprisoned Elizabeth, his daughter. But how did she, how did like she get food and I guess well, he had a way to. Yeah, he had a way to like, I guess, get in there, but she didn't have a way to get out. Wow. And I think she was so sickly at that point that. Oh, yeah. That's a twisted fucking person right there, boy. So he apparently told his psychiatrist, quote, she never showed me any love. She beat me and kicked me until I was on the floor and bleeding. I felt so weak and humiliated. I never got a kiss from her or even a hug, although I tried very hard to please her. The only thing she did with me was go to church. She beat me and kicked me until I was lying on the floor and I had a horrible fear from her. She kept insulting me and told me I was Satan, a criminal, a no good. Unreal. So, I mean, it's kind of one of those, what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? Was he always crazy and his mom just kind of saw it, that he was evil? Or did she make him evil by the way she treated him, you know what I mean? Yeah, probably. I would I would just venture a guess that it was a combination of both because, you know, if she was able to do that to her own child, then she already had a level of whether, we, you know, we want to blame mental illness or just the evil inside of her. And then, you know, naturally, I think that, you can pass that on through like genetics yeah through dna and stuff so i think that you know her evilness or whatever that was passed on to him somewhat and it was probably exacerbated by you know the lack of love and the natural torture and stuff that that came along with his childhood so well ironically this week we will also be discussing a case that was suggested by taylor as well oh awesome it's a twofer so this week is just a Taylor-centric episode. So, Taylor, you th you're the best. This one's for you. What was that word? Taylor-centric? Yeah, like wow. centered around Taylor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I... So this week, we're going to be covering the mysterious death of Molly Young. 
Molly Young. Okay. Have not heard of it. I had not heard of it either. I got the majority of my information for this case from several articles, one of which was a very detailed article written for Crime Watch Daily. Okay. Also from an episode of Still a Mystery entitled Molly Young, which it's episode two on season one. So I'll link all that in the show notes. But if you want to take a look, a gander at it. Alrighty. Molly was the youngest of three children born to Larry and Kathy Young. She and her family lived in Carbondale, Illinois. Right. Molly's sister, Holly Powell, recalled that Molly was incredibly smart and artsy, saying, quote, she loved music and art and literature, very intellectual and articulate. Larry recalled, quote, Molly is my youngest daughter, my baby daughter. She liked photography and art, and she was very good at it. Although by all accounts, Molly was a kind and loving child, she did suffer from bouts of depression and, like most teenagers, would record them in her journal. Once Holly turned 20, she also experienced a terrifying health scare. One day she noticed there was a large bump on her neck, which seemed to be growing bigger by the day. She visited a doctor who told Molly that he feared the knot might be cancerous. This obviously terrified Molly and her family, and she went through another short bout of depression at that point. Okay. A surgery was scheduled to remove the bump, and luckily, once it was tested, it was proven to not be cancer. Okay. So, of course, Molly and her family are immensely relieved. Mm-hmm. Around this same time, Molly began dating a man named Richie Minton. Richie was also in his early 20s and was working as a police dispatcher. Okay. When Molly first told her sister Holly that she'd begun dating Richie, Holly recalled being relieved. She told Crime Watch Daily, quote, You know, they're in their early 20s. Most of the guys her age are not the most responsible. So I thought, oh my gosh, he's got a good job. So when they first got together, I was actually happy for her. I was thrilled that she was with him. However, perhaps like most fathers, Molly's father, Larry, was not so easily swayed. <laughs> okay. He recalled getting an uneasy feeling upon first meeting Richie. So here, Larry really throws some shade Richie's way. Okay. He said, quote, when he smiled, it just, and I don't know if it's because of his bad teeth. It was just a feeling, you know, a feeling that he was an evil person. Did he say that because of the bad teeth part? Yes. Go dad. Damn, Larry. <laughs> Woo. He was like, yeah, he has some shitty teeth too. How about that? Okay. Which to be fair, I'll post pictures at, per the usual. He does have some not so nice teeth. So. Wow. Okay. Well. It quickly became apparent to Molly's family that Larry's first instincts were right, as it soon became obvious that the couple's relationship was extremely toxic. Mm. The couple began arguing a lot, and during these arguments, Richie grew more and more manipulative. According to Molly's family, Richie was constantly putting Molly down and would threaten that he would kill himself if she ever left him. Oh, okay. Always a red flag there. Yeah, that's... Immediately yeah. leave. If somebody yeah. does that to you, say goodbye. I gotta go. This is not working. See you later. You know, I I don't understand, like, men that are listening to this, if, if that's your tactic, that, you know, killing yourself or whatever or threatening it to keep someone around, like, man the fuck up and just, you know, move on. Like, yeah, if somebody doesn't want to be with you, there's plenty of fish in the sea. That's right. There's, right. So. Molly would frequently end her relationship with Richie until he manipulated her into coming back. So it was kind of one of those break up, get back together, break up, get back together. 
Ah, the domestic circle of violence. Yes. So Molly's mom, Kathy, recalled, quote, I was over her house one day and she said Richie just texted me that he's going to kill himself if we don't get back together. I said, he's manipulating you. I said, he's not going to kill himself. And she said, well, how can you be sure, though, mom? This manipulative and unhealthy behavior went on for over a year until one day Molly discovered she was pregnant with Richie's child. Molly called her sister Holly, which I think it's so funny that their sisters and their names are Molly and Holly. Molly and Holly, yeah. So she called Holly and told her what was going on. Holly remembered, quote, she called me one morning and she was with him. She told me then I'm pregnant. We've talked about it and I've decided I'm going to have an abortion. She explained to Holly that given her recent health scare, she didn't feel like she was in a place to safely carry a baby. However, later, once Molly was away from Richie, she confessed to her sister the real reason she chose to have an abortion. According to Holly, quote, She later told me that the real reason was because she did not want him to treat their child the way he had always treated her. She described him as a sociopathic. She described his narcissism and sense of grandeur and just not really having empathy for others. She didn't feel like he was capable of raising a child. So mm. honestly, good choice on her part not to have a kid with him. Yeah. Even more strangely, on the day Molly found out she was pregnant, Richie posted a Son of Sam quote on his social media. The quote read, And huge drops of lead poured down upon her head until she was dead. Oh, boy. Molly and her family took this quote as a threat towards Molly. Mm-hmm. Towards society, shit. Towards the whole female race. Well, first of all, here's the thing. species. Why are you quoting a serial killer? To me, that's... All right, all right. You know, you want to quote, like, Maya Angelou or frickin' Abe Lincoln or, you know, somebody who actually gave something to society. Like, why are you quote? To me, it's always weird if people are... Or even, like, Deadpool, if you're into, like, humor. Yeah. But, but a serial killer? Yeah, it, it just mm. it just comes across that you're, yeah. you know, kind of obsessing over a serial killer. Yeah, that you're not a good person. So shortly after this conversation that Molly had with her sister, Richie drove Molly to the doctor and Molly did successfully have an abortion. Okay. Following the abortion, Molly once again ended things with Richie. Okay. A few days later, on March 23, 2012, Molly's mom went in to say goodnight to Molly at around 10 p.m. Molly was in her PJs in bed. This would be the last time anyone in Molly's family saw her alive. Mm. At 5.30 a.m., Molly's mother suddenly awoke feeling panicked. She felt a need to go in and check on Molly, and she realized she wasn't in her bed. Kathy texted Molly to see where she had gone, but... Ominously, she never received a reply, which was unlike Molly. Okay. I think it's kind of interesting that she awoke already having like a mother's intuition that something was wrong. Right. Also, doing this podcast has really made me realize that I need to be better about answering my phone. Because if I do go missing, no one is even going to worry that I'm not answering. I need to get better about not, you know, leaving my phone laying around. Because if I go missing, I need people to know right away. Yeah, just for those of you listening, that's the running joke is she's notorious for she'll send a text and then throw her phone in a river and not answer for two hours, even though she just sent the text. Yeah, it's because I don't know. I just I'm not always on my phone, so I just will put I'll put it down somewhere. And honestly, half the time I can't even find where my phone is. So it's very angering. 
Yeah, so I've... And I'm one of those that needs something, a thumbs up. So like, I got that, I guess, from from my sergeant who I used to work with. He was like, I don't care. Shoot me a bird. I don't care. <laughs> but acknowledge acknowledge that you got my message or that, you know, it's just because, you know. Yeah, but that's, it's going to be one of my New Year's resolutions to be better about answering my phone. Primarily because if I go missing, I need y'all to know something's not right. Yeah, uh, okay. So Kathy continued to text Molly throughout the early morning. But when she once again received no response, she began driving around town to try and find Molly. Kathy immediately worried that Molly had been pressured and manipulated by Richie to return to his apartment. Kathy attempted to find Richie's apartment, but was unable to locate it and finally returned home. Okay, can I ask the, the usual questions? Like, sure. was her, her stuff was missing? Like, Yeah, was it was her... clear she had left the house, like her car was gone. And... Oh, okay, all right, so. Shortly after, at 9.02 a.m., Jackson County Police received a call from a man named Wes Romick. Molly's boyfriend's roommate. Okay. Here is part of the transcript of that call. 911 says, 911, what's your emergency? Wes says, hi, we have a person at my living facility who we believe to be dead. Wes then passes the phone to Richie, and Richie says, it's my ex-girlfriend. The dispatcher says, okay, and she's not breathing at all? Richie says, no, she, I woke up and she's covered in blood. She's overdosed. She bled out through her nose. Following this, Richie's call is transferred to his own dispatch center in Carbondale. Because remember, he's a police dispatcher. Right. Okay. This 911 dispatcher says, I'm going to send an ambulance. Richie says, this is Richie. My girlfriend just committed suicide. Can you send an ambulance here? Can you send a car over? The dispatcher says, yep, we'll be on our way. And Richie says, thanks, Amber, because he knew who it was. He knows, right. Okay. However, exactly seven minutes later... Richie calls the private line at his dispatch center, and Richie's co-worker, Amber, answers once again. Amber says, Carbondale Police. Richie says, hey, Amber. She says, yeah. Richie says, hey, um, can you send the sergeant? She didn't know D. I just found my gun laying beneath her. When police and paramedics arrived, it was apparent that 21-year-old Molly Young was deceased. Police Chief Jody O'Gwynn ordered his officers to secure the scene, not to let anyone in or out of the apartment, and to call in the state police to take over the case, as he recognized that his own officers could not investigate the case as they personally knew Richie. Chief O'Gwynn did find the situation immediately odd, considering that Richie had not shown up to work that morning. However, before the state police arrived to take over the case, Richie and his roommate, Wes, were taken down to the station to get an official statement of what had occurred. However, as the police were unable to investigate themselves, they simply separated Wes and Richie and waited for the state police to arrive. Oh, okay. I was going to say, why are they taking a statement at all? Right. But during this time, Richie made several spontaneous utterances to the officers. Mm -hmm. Okay. He claimed that the night before he'd gone out drinking and had gotten extremely intoxicated. Once he'd arrived back home, he'd vomited all over himself and had called Molly to come over and help him. So here's my thing. Okay. You're not coherent enough to take your own vomit clothes off, but you're coherent enough to dial her phone number and all of that. Mm-hmm. That's the evolution or the start of attempting to build a story 
Right. Or alibi defense, whatever you want to call it. Well, so. once I lay out everything, I'm interested to see kind of what your take on it is. Okay. Phone records would later show that he made this call to Molly a little after 3 a.m. Molly then drove over, helped Richie out of his clothes, and tucked him into bed, and Richie passed out drunk. He claimed that is why he hadn't woken up for work and why he'd slept through the gunshot which had killed Molly. He told the officers that he'd been awoken by his phone when his co-worker had called to see where he was. At that point, he realized Molly was laying on the floor, deceased, right next to his bed, and covered in blood. He claimed that there had been a bottle of pills on the nightstand next to her, and that's why he'd first assumed that she'd overdosed. However, after calling 911 the first time, Richie had gone over to Molly to see if he could help her in any way and had found his gun lying underneath her, and it was only then he'd realized she'd been shot. So this is Richie's story. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a lot of questions. We're going to answer them, or at least as many as we can. Okay. So when somebody overdoses, they don't bleed out of their nose, or do they? No. No. Because- I've not experienced that. I thought that was interesting because he's a 911 dispatcher, so he- he should have some level of knowledge about certain things like that. Yeah, yeah, he's got a basic level of training. So It was odd that he saw blood from her nose and immediately thought it was an overdose. I'm like, the only thing I think you could overdose where you would be bleeding out of your nose is cocaine. Well, yeah, that would be if you snorted so much cocaine that it caused you know, hemorrhages or ruptures or whatever in the nasal cavity, yeah. Because but... he's insinuating that she swallowed pills, and I'm like, yeah, she may have vomit or something, but I wouldn't think there would be blood. You're correct. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a medical expert, and I'm there. Maybe there is a possibility that there is some type of drug or something that may cause you to, you know, to hemorrhage that in that fashion. I've never experienced that in my, in my time. Which I mean, to me, that says something. <laughs> yeah. Well. After these spontaneous utterances, Richie refused to talk any longer. By the time the state police arrived at 10 a.m., Richie already had his parents and a lawyer present. This is particularly interesting, as both of Richie's parents worked in law enforcement as well. Okay. Police began their investigation by examining Richie's body to see if he had any wounds. As it turned out, they discovered that he had six-inch long scratches running down his back and side. Richie claimed he'd somehow scratched himself while attempting to give Molly CPR. Bullshit. Yeah, like, how the fuck would that happen? Again, grasping at, you know, straws that are not going to help. Investigators quickly believed that Molly's death was more than a suicide. Only an hour after the 911 call, at 10.16 a.m., state investigators wrote an email stating, quote, the death of the victim was initially believed to be a suicide. However, when questioned, the dispatcher suspiciously lawyered up. The incident is being investigated as a homicide. Absolutely. Which, to be fair, to kind of be a devil's advocate here, I don't think it's that strange that he lawyered up. I think even if if it were me, I would have lawyered up, even if I didn't do anything. Okay. That afternoon, when Molly's mother, Kathy, arrived home, there was a state police car in her driveway, and she immediately knew something was wrong. She recalled, quote, He said, I regret to inform you that your daughter has been killed, and I fell to the floor. Kathy immediately called Molly's father, Larry, and told him what had occurred. Larry recalled, quote, I got called by Molly's mother. I went to the police station and asked to speak to the first responding officer. 
I said, I want to know the who, the what, when, where, and why. The officer agreed to speak to Larry and brought him outside. According to Larry, quote, first thing he told me, this lieutenant said, father to father, Carbondale police botched the case. They let him wash his hands and change his clothes at the scene. Oh, okay. So that's, uh, I, I can tell from your reaction that that's a um, no-go. Yeah, that's basic law enforcement 101, like, come on. However, this was not the only strange thing police did when investigating this case. Before they'd even searched Richie's home, they secured a search warrant to investigate Molly's bedroom at her mother's house. What? They already searched Molly's bedroom before they even searched the crime scene. Wait, wait, wait. What? Okay. Go ahead. I'll let you continue. Cause... Police came in and took Molly's computer, camera, and journals into evidence. So I can tell from your reaction that's not normal. <laughs> With the Carbondale police or the state police? Um, I'm assuming the state police, although to be honest, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I'm assuming it's the state police because from what... Okay, hold on. Let's back up for a second. Who? So we don't know which agency obtained that search warrant? I mean, no, because I don't have okay. you know access to those okay. records, but I, okay. I'm pretty sure it was the state police. Okay, well, I would like to know what judge, I'm just going to throw this out, I'd like to know what judge would sign a search warrant for, how do I How do I word this? It's a homicide investigation, which naturally judges are going to sign search warrants for, but usually not for the victim's residence, where the crime did not occur, all prior to having any information of the crime itself moving forward. Did that make sense? Yes. Because okay. I definitely thought it was odd. I don't think it's odd that they secured a search warrant for Molly's room. I think that that's, you know, necessary. But That's fine, but that would be... I think it's odd that they did that before even searching the crime scene. That's what scene. I'm saying. <laughs> Had, you know, laying down the groundwork or trying to piece together the chain of events, if that leads you to, you know, needing to go to her room to try to answer a question or something then by all means, absolutely. But to do that before you've even looked at the crime scene or gone in and investigated anything, like just based off, like, let's say the phone calls and the fact that you have a deceased person, you're going to do that. That clearly shows, that's why I asked, was it state police or local police? Because if it was a local police, then that automatically throws up a flag that somebody's trying to, whether it's help him, cover it up, or keep the spotlight off the police department or, you know, the, right. the, you know, so, and I'm not saying that that's what happened here. I'm just, from what you've told me so far, those red flags are, are flying up right. loud and clear. So. so the very next day after Molly's death, the coroner released his findings. Okay. And to her family's shock, in his report, he wrote, quote, the investigation conducted by the agencies involved indicated self-inflicted wound. The manner of death is classifiable as suicide. Okay. So this is literally the day after her death. Yeah, well. Like, they haven't even had enough time to investigate. Right. Well, yeah, you, you didn't get toxicology back. You didn't get, because I know that my department that I used to work for, our lab is huge, and we couldn't get toxicology. And, like, our medical examiner's office is one of the largest in the country. You were lucky if you got toxicology back in two weeks. Yeah, so you're saying this is bullshit. Of course. Okay. Of course. I'm sorry. So, Molly's father, Larry, told Crime Watch Daily. Oh, and to interrupt, when you have a homicide investigation, it, the manner is homicide, but until you get all 
of the medical facts, toxicology, you know, blood work, like all that stuff. You can't close the case or, you know, show a manner of death or a cause of death. Like you have to have all those factors. So, yeah, so, they shouldn't have even done that. It's what you're saying. They shouldn't have even released the report then. Correct. They could have said, this is what we believe is happening. And this is but they wouldn't even say that because you don't want to give wrong information. Right. Like you, that you may have to change. So. So Molly's father, Larry, told Crime Watch Daily, quote, I don't believe that shit for a second. Ditto. I agree. Here, here. Molly's mother also didn't believe that Molly was, had been suicidal. Kathy had seen her in her bed just hours before her death, and she believed Molly had seemed fine and not depressed in any way. According to investigators, they were led to believe Molly's death had been a suicide due to several items they'd found in her room. On Molly's computer, they found multiple searches for the word suicide the day before she died. Also, in Molly's journals, Molly had made several references to being depressed and unhappy with her life. Additionally, police found a goodbye letter on the floor of Molly's room, which they believed was a suicide note to her family. However, her family did not believe the note to be evidence of anything. Molly's father, Larry, explained, quote, It didn't mention the word suicide. It was a goodbye letter. It was written a year prior, right after she had the cancer scare. And I believe she thought she was going to die of cancer. Unreal. The letter said in part, quote, I've been alone a long time. Richie, all I ever wanted was to be with you, and I'm sorry that I made that so hard. Mom and Dad, I love you. It's not your fault. But after reading the note, one of Molly's friends explained to Molly's parents that they knew for a fact that Molly had not written that note on the evening of her death, as she had shown him the note months before she died, back when she believed she'd had cancer. Mm Mm-hmm. Additionally, the journal entries Molly had written about being depressed had all been written long before the night of her death. The earliest one was written four years prior, and the most recent one was written nine months prior. Molly's sister Holly explained, quote, You can't base what happened to my sister that night on a journal that she started when she was 16. I mean, to me, that's ludicrous. Agreed. Investigators also believed Molly was suicidal after speaking with Richie's roommate, Wes who, unlike Richie, had agreed to speak with state police. Strangely, he too had scratches on his back. Here is a portion of the transcript of the interview. The detective says, All right, you have two light scratches in the middle of your back. What are those from? Wes replies, I have a fairly physical job. So, just to let everybody know, Wes worked nights, and it was later confirmed that he'd been at work when Molly had supposedly committed suicide. However, he also claimed that many people knew that Molly had been suicidal in the past. West said, quote, It's open knowledge that she'd had very suicidal thoughts for quite some time. He told police, quote, I worked until about 5.30. My cell phone had died, so I plugged my cell phone in and I checked my messages and I had one from Molly. After looking at the messages, investigators believed that Molly had sent the text shortly before she died. The detective asks him, She sends you a text at 4.40 in the morning. You're still at work, I guess, right? Do you remember what the text said? Wes said, quote, The last text she sent me, all I remember was it said he had been drunk texting another girl, asking her to stay the night, and that he was so drunk he couldn't walk, and she also apologized if I came home to anything dramatic. But that was not exactly what the text had said. 
Okay. Phone records would later show that the text the investigator had been referring to said, quote, I think I'm going to shoot myself in the head. I'm really, really sorry if you come home to that. Okay. So I'm sorry, but how do you get that text confused? No, she said yeah. she was going to shoot herself in the head. So why are you lying yeah. about that? Okay. So his roommate sent that on her phone. That's what I think. To, yeah, of course. So the detective asks Wes, quote, and so about 7 or 7.30, you go to sleep. What's the next thing that happens after that? Wes says, quote, I wake up to Richie opening my door and saying, Molly's dead. Help. I can't find my phone. However, upon hearing about Molly's suicidal text, Molly's family immediately believed that it had been Richie who sent the texts, not Molly. Of course. Strangely, although the investigators had immediately collected Molly's computer, they failed to take Richie's computer into evidence until two months after Molly had died. So remember, they took her computer like the day of. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. The family also discovered that when the suicide searches had been done on Molly's computer, Molly hadn't even been home. In fact, she'd been out with a male friend of hers at a local nightclub seeing a concert. Additionally, the family doesn't believe the physical evidence found is consistent with a suicide. For one, the gunshot wound on Molly was found on the top left side of her head. Not only was the location of the wound odd for a suicide, but also Molly was right-handed. It seemed incredibly unlikely that she would shoot herself on the top of the left side of her head with her left hand. Even more strangely, Molly had absolutely no gunshot residue on her hands. And her fingerprints were not found anywhere on Richie's gun. Mm -hmm. No gunshot residue was found on Richie's hands. But remember, he'd been allowed, he washed his hands. He'd been allowed to wash his hands. So, of course, mm -hmm. there wasn't. Shockingly, Police Chief O'Gwyn claimed it was not odd that his officers allowed Richie to wash up before testing his hands. Wait, wait what? So he told Crime Watch Daily, quote, the evidence that they would have obtained from even his filthy hands was not enough to prove whether or not he did the crime or not. So that hand washing thing is really inconsequential. Oh, my. He's an idiot. Okay. He's an idiot. Yeah. You could say it. He is. Yeah. And he's the police chief. How big a department is this? Do we know? Carbondale is kind of a big area. Is it? I okay. actually know somebody who, who was from there. Mm. I mean, it's not as big as, like, say, Chicago or something, but I, th no, I right, think right. it's a pretty decent-sized suburb. Oh. Chief O'Gwin also admitted that none of the officers present at the scene had received any sort of disciplinary action for letting him wash his hands and change his clothes. Of course not. As none of the officers would admit to allowing Richie to do so. That's what he told... Crime Watch Daily. He told them, oh, no one got in trouble because no one would admit to it. Additionally, Richie's DNA was found underneath Molly's fingernails, along with two other unknown DNA profiles. Hmm. Roommate one, Wes? Well, and that's one thing I was trying to find, and I really couldn't find anything on it, but I was wondering if they even took Wes's DNA to test it against it. Well, they should have because he was in that house. But, you know, if, if you're allowing people to wash their hands before you do a GSR on their hands, then. Molly's family also doesn't believe it is plausible that Richie slept through a gunshot, which would have taken place only inches away from him. Correct. 
but was woken up by a phone, by a, right. a, a ringing phone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even Police Chief O'Gwin agrees that this part of the case is suspicious. He admitted, quote, Is it something that I think I would sleep through? No. Is it something that I think is possible for someone to be able to sleep through? Yes. No. Yeah, I don't think so either. Sorry. No, but he said yes and okay. And he said likely? No. Do we know what type of gun was it? Do we know? It was a handgun. It was Do we know the caliber or anything? Like... I don't, but Okay. I've seen the crime scene photos. It was kind of a larger black gun with a wood handle. Like a, a revolver? No. Or a okay, Not a so, revolver. So, all right, so some automatic. Right. All right, so so anybody just for for context, if anybody anybody that's ever gone to like a gun range or has fired a gun, uh, more than likely fired it outdoors or inside of a gun range where you have hearing protection. And you can hear it pretty pretty good, even with hearing protection. Like you hear it's pretty loud. Oh, it's pretty loud. So inside of a bedroom or inside of a room with no hearing protection, no, that shit's deafening. Yeah. It literally makes your ears ring. So for him to be able to say that he slept through it is an absolute lie. Unless he had, you know, ear earplugs in and his head was in a bag and under a pillow, you know, wrapped in a blanket and, you know, in the freezer. Yeah. Come on. Well, and because I've fired weapons at a shooting range and even with the headphones on and everything, it's still deafening. Yes. It's, yes, it's, it's loud as fuck. And so when you're literally a foot or two or three away inside of an enclosed room with the amplification of the, the, the acoustics of a room and just that blast is so poo-poo on the chief. Molly's family believes that Richie drunkenly called Molly over to his house. And when she arrived, some sort of fight ensued, which mm-hmm. escalated to a physical assault, which is how Richie mm-hmm. got the scratches. Mm-hmm. The family believes Wes heard the fight and came to break it up, which is how he got scratches as well. Mm-hmm. However, at some point, either after Wes had come in or during while Wes was there, Richie shot Molly. Mm-hmm. Molly's sister Holly said, quote, he had many hours before he called 911 to come up with a plan to try to cover his tracks. Correct. Ten months after Molly's death, a special coroner's inquest was convened to address the inconsistencies surrounding Molly's death. It was the jury's job to determine if Molly's death should in fact be labeled a suicide or if it should be relabeled as either accidental, criminal, or undetermined. However, the family was unable to present all of the evidence they believed refuted the investigators' claims. But despite this, the jury also didn't believe there was enough evidence to state without a reasonable doubt that Molly had committed suicide. They found Molly's death to be undetermined. Okay. Nineteen different lab tests had been performed on evidence from the case. But strangely, none of these tests were presented to the jury. And even when the family filed to see the police records through the Freedom of Information Act, they were still denied the lab results. Finally, after two years of fighting to see these reports, Molly's father, Larry, filed a wrongful death suit in civil court against Richie Minton. He did this knowing that this would force the police to release the lab results to the family's attorney. Larry explained, quote, Our sole purpose was not monetary in the wrongful death suit. It was to get information because I had no records. They fought me every inch of the way. I didn't even have the 911 tape. Molly's family also didn't have her cell phone records. 
and once they received them, they were shocked to find even more incriminating evidence against Richie. Someone had deleted all of the text messages from Richie off of Molly's phone. Although Richie and Molly had dated for a year prior to her death, there was not one text message on her phone from Richie until March 9th, only two weeks before Molly was killed. (laughs) Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. (laughs) Interestingly, following the closing of the coroner's inquest, investigators decided to re-interview Richie's roommate, Wes, And lo and behold, Wes suddenly had more information to tell police. In his interview, Wes admitted, quote, I got home and looked through Richie's phone. When I arrived home, his phone was sitting in the common room bathroom, and I knew he'd been drinking that night, and I looked through the phone to see, I guess, kind of where his night ended up. But if you remember, this was far from what both Wes and Richie had originally claimed about where his phone was located. Originally, Richie had claimed that he'd been woken up to calls from his co-worker because he hadn't shown up to a 7 a.m. shift at work. Then, Wes claimed that Richie had woken him up claiming he couldn't locate his phone and Wes needed to call 911. Mm-hmm. Now, Wes was claiming that Richie's phone had been left in the bathroom the night before. Mm-hmm. The detective then says, quote, I do want to recap, because honestly, what you just mentioned about going through Richie's phone, you didn't tell us that before. Wes answers, really? (laughs) The detective says, yeah, did you delete anything off his phone while you were looking through it? Wes claims that he did not. However, Molly's family does not believe Wes had anything to do with the missing texts. They believe either Richie did it himself or had help from his father, who happens to be a forensic computer expert who works for the state police. Oh, my God. So he works for the state police. Okay. The the ones who are investigating this. Molly's family believes that within the four hours between Molly's death and when Richie called 911, he had plenty of time to call his dad over to help him. (laughs) And it's possible that Richie's dad wiped both phones during that time. Molly's family also believes that Richie's father may have assisted Richie by remotely accessing Molly's computer and implanting the suicide searches. Unreal. Richie's father was questioned by the police, and he denied being involved in any capacity. Both Richie's parents claim they didn't even know anything had happened until Richie called them from the police station the day after Molly's death. However, the family believes there is evidence that there were people at the apartment prior to the first 911 call at 9 a.m. Molly's uncle, whose name is Charles Lamont, is a retired police detective turned private investigator, and he quickly began investigating Molly's death as soon as it occurred. He spoke with several neighbors of Richie's, who the police failed to interview. So the police never even spoke to any of his neighbors. And he lived in an apartment, so... Yeah. Several different neighbors from several different units within the apartment complex all claimed that they saw a Carbondale police car arrive to the apartment at 7 a.m. But remember, 911 wasn't called till 9 a.m. Called till 9, yeah. Charles claimed, quote, Now, I don't know how they do it, but if you had an employee, an officer, or a dispatcher that did not show up for work and we could not get a hold of them, somebody would have been sent to check on them. If that's the case, they stumbled across a crime scene much earlier than had been reported. So is that true? They will send someone out? Yeah, absolutely. 
Crime Watch Daily spoke to Police Chief O'Gwin about this discrepancy, and he claimed, quote, I wouldn't send anybody in this particular incident because we were told that contact had been made with him and that he was going to come in, but he was going to be a little bit late. However, if you recall, Richie later claimed to police that he hadn't realized until he'd been woken up by his co-workers' calls that Molly was dead beside him on the floor. Right. If the police chief is claiming that they had made contact with him prior to that, how is mm-hmm. it possible that Richie had an entire conversation with his coworker but failed to notice that Holly was covered in blood dead beside him? Right. Yeah. It's it's all it's all it's all fabricated lies. So when asked, Chief O'Gwin stated, quote, That's a good question. It's very odd, yes. Well, hiding in plain sight. That's exactly what that is. I'm, you know. Oh, okay. Interestingly, Richie now no longer works for the Carbondale Police Department. Following Molly's death, Richie was caught drunk driving twice and was charged with two separate DWIs, which led to his firing. Now he works instead for the St. Louis Fire Department as a dispatcher. Unfortunately, Larry Young's wrongful death lawsuit against Richie went nowhere because the police took too long to get Larry all of the files. The statute of limitations of two years had run out during that time, and Larry was forced to drop the case. Okay, wait. All right, just go ahead. So finally, out of all options, Larry wrote a letter appealing to his newly elected state representative, Terry Bryant. Due to their work together, a new law was made known as Molly's Law. This law requires that police must turn over documents requested through the Freedom of Information Act within 30 days of the request or they will face strong penalties. The law also elongated the statute of limitations on wrongful death cases from two years to five years after death. That's what I was going to bring up is like, I understand the statute of limitations and they changed in this case, but if you actively have a court proceeding in civil court and you've made a, a records request and the parties that are responsible to provide you those records don't do it in the t- in a timely fashion or within that, then that's on that's not on the plaintiff or the person bringing this this case so it shouldn't he shouldn't be penalized the statute of limitations because of another party's reluctance or you know blatant disregard for the request right so the case should never have been thrown out that's yeah horrible this poor family got has been fucked over so many times it's really sad yeah it's it's unbelievable Unfortunately, this new law does not help Larry or the rest of Molly's family as the law went into effect after Molly's death. Larry stated, quote, I knew going into that, that the law, it wouldn't help me. I did it for other people because there's, you can't imagine how many other people are going through what I'm going through. Right. Yep. Which I thought that was pretty cool that he um, thought about others. Yeah, he did it for for others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can do when you know you're. When you know there's absolutely nothing you can do for yourself, if you can, you know, change it for a future, you know, I hate to say it for, you know, the potential for future, you know, crimes or, or whatever, which you know is going to happen, good on him, so. As of now, a new prosecutor has been assigned to Molly's case, but claims there is too little evidence to do anything to move the case forward. Stating, quote, although this was a tragic end to a young lady's life, there is simply insufficient evidence at this time to charge anyone as accountable for murder. As for Molly's sister, Holly, she fully believes that Richie is responsible for her sister's death. She stated, quote, 
If she hadn't met him, this would never have happened. I believe 100% she would still be here today. At her funeral, I lost it and jumped on her casket, and my family had to carry me away. And he didn't even come. Is that what she meant to you was nothing? So he didn't even go to her funeral. Piece of shit. However, Holly also believes that eventually there will come a time when Richie is brought to justice. She also stated, quote, I would tell him that one day my dad is going to take you down. Just wait. Isn't that a sad case? Yeah, that's that's absolutely horrible, you know. And shame on those investigators. Yeah. Shame on them. Well, and shame on the police chief. You're you're such an idiot. Well, that yeah, but unfortunately he had people in place in both the local, you know, the local department and the state department who, you know, his father worked for the state which that and once you said that, I was like, "Oh, well, of course, no wonder they're well, that's you why know. when you had asked earlier who did the, who um, served the search warrant, in in my head I was thinking it really doesn't matter because both matter, both are yeah. corrupt. So, yeah, I don't want to go too much into the because you know we know that this is a horseshit case, but like when he when he changed when he made the call and said that he he found that there her his gun was underneath her. Right. Like I was going to ask, like get into like what position was the body? So it's kind of hard. I'll post pictures of it. It's okay. uh, of not of the body, but of the drawings of it. No, no, right. It's was she like face down? So was she, she on her back? I believe she was on her. She was on her back. It was kind of like a queen size bed. Out is my guess. Okay, okay. So she was on the floor beside it. So if you're laying on the bed, she was found on the left side of the bed. Okay. And she was laying sort of diagonally beside it. So her feet were closer okay. to the bed, and her head was closer away so from like the bed. A wall. Okay. And the gun was found? Kind of near a nightstand, because there's a nightstand, right. so her legs, she was kind of laying okay. diagonally in front of the nightstand. Okay. And so, just just on that alone, she's right-handed, the gunshot wounds on the top left of her Yeah, right above her ear, head, but on the top. And she's laying on her back, but the gun's underneath her. Right. Like, where's the positions of her hands? You know, like, those are- Her hands, just to, her, to... her hands were laying beside her, at least in the pictures I saw. Okay, no, not holding the gun no. because- No, you know, no, 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 right. the gun, she wasn't holding the gun, no. And I would then my, I would go into where's the blood evidence? Like what's the blood pattern? Is it pooling underneath her? Is it is there, you know, against the wall? You know, like so those, just as an investigator, right? Like, those would be things that I would be like, no, this is not a suicide, right? Like hello, you know. So well, I mean, but, I think it's pretty obvious to at least to me it was not a suicide in my in my humble opinion. Although I'm not an investigator. No, yeah, but I mean, but that's like physical evidence that you could absolutely one hundred percent say. No, it's not. Right. It's somebody, somebody caused that gunshot wound to her. That's well, and I, a fucking, that's a homicide. That's a murder. Well, and you know, so. I do think it's odd that they're both, his roommate and him had scratches across their back. I mean, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Is it, of course, anything's possible. Is it possible that it was just coincidental? Sure. But I do think it's odd that he claimed, at least Wes had a good excuse. He's like, oh, my job's very physical, so I get scratched a lot. Whereas Richie literally was like, I think I just got him when I was giving her CPR. Like, how? From who? From what? Okay, so so as we've talked in the past, so, okay, so those are questions that need answered. Right. Very very simple. The family has a plausible story that he walked in on the two of them arguing. He tried to separate them. She scratched him, too, because she's in the fight for her life, whatever. Well, you have DNA under her fingernails, and it came back to two different, you know, had two different matches. His... Plus two others, right. correct? Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. So test Wes. Right. And I guarantee you that if his DNA is 
underneath is one of those DNA patterns, then that's that's the plot. That's the reasonable conclusion. Argument is yeah. That, yeah. And if it's not his, then then you exclude him, and you've answered that question. Right. Like, come on, it's a no brainer. You don't have to be an investigator to know to to know to do that. That's just common sense. That's what's frustrating is that. But you also have to take into context that there was elements of cover up and you know people in positions to protect him and so you know you have to kind of you can't go by what the normal course of investigation would be because you're not going to have it in this case so that's what's frustrating is because you know looking at it after the fact you can see all the inconsistencies and all the errors and all the blatant you know, lying and, you know, manipulation of evidence. And, and I'm I'm sorry, how do you let somebody in that situation change out of their clothes and wash their right. hands and do all of that before you take any evidence at right. all? Right. There's just so many errors in procedure and, and everything that's just like, you know. So unfortunately for that family, they're never going to get the true answer. Like, you know, they're... I mean, I hope truly that some, you know, cold case officer who really wants to do the right thing i really hope that they take the initiative and do the right thing one day yeah but the problem is is if the evidence is not there you're not going to obtain evidence now like the most you could get now is like maybe statements from people but other than that physical evidence is lost everything and that's all cold case you know cold case investigators that's what the majority of their investigation is is because now we can test things or now they can test things and do other things that weren't available to them back in the day. Right. And then naturally with new information or new statements, then yes, you put it all together. But Or maybe unfortunately, um, maybe eventually the roommate will come out and, you know, yeah, maybe. say what really happened. But I mean, I hope for the family yeah. that something happens because that's yeah. really shitty. Well, you know, they, they probably, and again, we don't have 100% you know, confirmation that that's what they believe happened, happened. But at least they more or less know what happened. Like, you know, even though it hasn't been proven, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to disbelieve what the police are saying or what the reports say and believe what you kind of feel in your heart. So, you know, just a very unfortunate case. Very sad that, you know, someone lost their life like that and the, the cover up. The and... other scary part of it, too, is if he really is guilty of this murder, he's still out there. You know what I mean? He's still out there, yeah. You know, if you really are of violent against women, that's not a one. T I think pretty much. No. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I would venture to guess 99% of the time you're not violent just in one woman in particular. Correct. It's you're going to continue that pattern of behavior in all your future relationships. So, yeah. I mean, it's scary that the possibility is out there that this could happen to somebody else. Right, for sure. So we do have a question. This question is from A.A. Ron. A.A. Ron. Otherwise known as Aaron. A.K. Aaron. I'm sure poor Aaron probably gets that uh, all the time. Oh, yeah. A.A. Ron. He asked, has all that fucked up stuff you talk about and the stuff your dad has seen changed anything about how you parent? And then there's a second part to it, but we'll answer the first part first. Absolutely. Same. 100%. Even for me, just listening to true crime and, you know, doing this podcast, I'm completely more overprotective. I don't let my kids play outside by themselves. I don't let them go anywhere by themselves. I always drive home 
all of the, you know, true crime advice. If somebody grabs you, make sure you scream and yell. Right. We're very open with our kids about also um, if anyone touches you inappropriately, you have to tell someone. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that it's definitely made me more protective. (laughs) The same, like when I became a police officer, you were, you know, very little at the time. Um, But, you know, I already kind of had the protective instinct to begin with. And, you know, being in, having been in the military, um, but going through, yeah, you just kind of, I hate to say, I said, I think I said it in the last podcast when we got the question about, like, I think everybody lies, like, you know, the way the job had changed me. And I think every, it's not that I think everybody lies, but I think, you know, I, I see the, I know the potential that's in everyone and, you know, the evil. I've seen the evil that people are capable of. So I tend to always be on guard and I don't tend to take everybody at their word, you know, initially until you've kind of earned, you know, my respect and my trust, which I don't give very easily, you know. So um, I think that's that's what's changed me. And I've just always been protective. Like you said, you never went outside. You grew up on a cul-de-sac. Yeah. When you played across the street with your friend Tiffany, I was outside. Like if you guys were outside, we were we were out. One of us was outside, either myself or her father. We we just kind of always um, have been that way. And you know, it's when we grew up, like when I was a kid, which we're talking, you know, forty five years ago, whatever. We used to leave in the morning and not come home until nighttime, and we were fine. Was there danger? Yes. Was there potential? Like shit did happen, of course, but it was a different time, and everybody kind of like, you know, it says it takes a village to raise a child. Everybody kind of watched out for everybody's kids. And, yeah. You know, another person's parents could discipline you and they could, you know, if you fucked up, they told your parents. And so it was a different time. But, you know, me just knowing what I've known and experienced what I've experienced and stuff, you know, not that I'm perfect or that I can, you know, save the world or whatever, but I'm going to die trying to protect my family. And, you know, that's just my mindset. So it definitely to answer Aaron's or Aaron's question. Yeah, that's for me. Yes. And I know my capabilities and I know. And I've been in those fight or flight situations and I'm a fighter. I don't, you know, I run towards the gunfire. I don't run away from it. So so uh, the second part of his question, which you've kind of sort of already answered, he said, and how after a career in law enforcement did you manage to not just keep your kids locked in the house away from all the crazies in the world? Well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, naturally you've been on your own for a while now and you're, you're a parent and, you know, I have beautiful grandkids and my other children, uh, one's an adult, one, my son's about to become an adult. You just kind of, I'm still very overprotective and I still need to know where they're going. I still, you know, I track their cell phones. They're not, if, you know, the minute they turn off the tracking on their, their cell phones, they lose it. Which, like, uh, thank God that was not around when I was a kid. Uh, I was yeah. not tracked because, you know, that was back when we had the brick phones. Yeah. Not that but I, I not that you. I was really out doing anything, but still. That's the other thing is that, you know, I trusted you and I, and I trusted that we raised you enough and you knew, were you going to do shit? Of course. Are, do I, do I not think that my kids don't go out and do shit? I was a teenager. I know, but I want to know where they're at. It's not because I want to know what they're doing. I want to know where they're at. So God forbid. Something happens. Something happens. I need to have fucking point A where I can start going to look, you know? Yeah. So, so that, you know, you have to. As bad as it is out there or the potential of you still have to allow them to grow and experience things and you have to trust that they're going to make right decisions and that they know, my kids know they can call me 24 hours, even you know, 24 hours a day, whatever, and 
I will fucking get to you. Funny story. There was one time, I think it only happened once that I can recall, but there was one time when I was in high school and, you know, my parents always told me if if we're not going to ask any questions, if you need a ride or whatever, it doesn't matter. And um, I got drunk with a friend and we were supposed to have another friend of ours. We were actually, when I was in high school, we were very good about not drinking and driving. So we were supposed to have a friend who was basically supposed to be our, our DD, but he ended up basically leaving us behind. So oh, uh, I had I to call you and it was it was late. I can't remember what time it was, but it was late. And you ca- yeah, you came and got me like a, like a trooper and we're just like, all right, come on. That's it. Still going to be a parent. And I'm still, you know, I'm sure I do remember going to pick you up because it was over by I remember over by the water it was a big. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I don't remember the conversation the next day. I don't think um, you really if, gave me a hard time like at all. I don't think you really said much besides. Because you did the right thing. Yeah. And you called me. And you know what? When I was, you know, 16, 17, I was, you know, I was out partying and, you know, doing what we shouldn't be doing as kids, but we do it. And, you know, I was very lucky that I had a good set of friends too. And we always were, one of us, you know, stayed sober enough. Then if we didn't, then we were able to call, I was able to call my mom. Yeah. And, you know, cause she made that pact with me. So, and not everybody has those type of parents, but, you know, I'm pretty open with you guys. And, you know, if if you take away the curiosity, then there's no interest in doing it behind the back. You know, yeah. It's, that's my belief anyway. I think it's not, true. It, you're going to do it at some point, whether it's in front of us or behind our back or whatever. And I'd rather you know that you can call me or my kids can call me and there's not going to be any judgment in that moment. Now, if I have to become, you know, if I have to be the parent the next day and, and do something, then naturally, but. Right. Or at least they'll have the knowledge of if they are going to do it, to do it hopefully safely or in moderation or, or whatever. So, so Aaron, I hoped that uh, that answered your question. Yeah, I mean that was a pretty long answer. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we hope you guys are enjoying your new year. We hope. Yep. Your New Year's resolutions come to fruition. And make ones that you can actually hold on to, or you know, to the best of your ability. Best of your ability, because you know, I've made them every year, and you know. Eh. But if you want to submit case suggestions or questions, uh, you can do so. There's a link in our show notes. You can also always email them to can't make this shit up pod at gmail.com. Also, as always, if you'll follow us on our social media, I'll be posting pictures from this case, which I think kind of will really help the understanding of kind of the case. Yeah. So you can follow us. We have a Facebook group. If you just search can't make this shit up a true crime podcast, we're on there. We're on Instagram at Can't Make This Shit Up Pod. We're on Twitter at CMTSU Pod. Yeah. So until next week, bye. Bye.